Tavis Smiley, you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. We're glad to have you with us in this hour. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. That sounds so good. Uh, I was just saying, I have uh, eclectic music taste, and I love classical, and uh, that's, what, that's what we're going to give you this hour. In this hour, can we reshape the history of American classical music by embracing its diverse origins and composers of color? And what happens when classical music intersects with an activism that challenges its normalized narrative? Classical agitator, love that phrase, classical agitator Garrett McQueen joins us in this hour for what promises to be a rich dialogue. He is director of artist equity for the American Composers Orchestra, and uh, we will talk with him throughout this hour about decolonizing classical music. I am pleased to welcome Garrett McQueen to this program. Garrett, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to dialogue with you. It's my great honor to have you on and uh, a good excuse for us to play classical music throughout this hour, and uh, we're going to do just that. (laughs) In and out of every break, we're going to play some good classical music. Uh, that uh, Garrett McQueen, frankly, has curated. Uh, oftentimes, uh, I will give our guests, depending on the subject matter, the opportunity to curate the music for the hour as we go in and out of breaks. And so Garrett McQueen was kind enough to give us um, some pieces uh, that we're going to play in and out as we give this uh, this hour some life, if you will. The piece we just played, Garrett, was what and why? Okay, so the piece that we just heard was the third movement of a work known as the Afro-American Symphony. It was written by a man named William Grant Still back in 1930. When he wrote that piece of music and had it performed, he became the first black man to have, the black person, I should say, first black person to have a piece of music performed by a professional orchestra. He celebrated many other firsts over the course of his career. But when we talk about Afro-American classical music specifically, it's it's hard to ignore the incredible work of the late, great William Grant Still. Indeed it is. Hard to ignore. Uh, let me start our conversation with this broad question. I'm glad we have an hour to unpack a lot um, over the next 60 minutes. But what is it about the origins of classical music uh, that you think needs to be interrogated, broadly speaking? Yeah, so I think typically speaking, when people think about classical music or think about going to an orchestra concert, they're thinking about something white or something that has been exclusively white. So the narrative that I really uh, challenge is not only uh, the history of black involvement in classical music in the United States, but over the history of uh, classical music, even in Europe, you know, there are black composers who we point to back in the 1700s, all the way back to the 15th century. So really the first point that I think uh, I make in all of my work toward decolonizing classical music is helping people understand that black involvement in the art form has always been there since there has been a thing that we've called classical music. Mm. And why is it then that that uh, that contribution, that grand contribution from these African-American artists uh, has been, how might I put it, has been rendered invisible? Why has it been rendered invisible? Well, we just have to consider the the history of this nation. Many of the uh, many of America's major classical music institutions, I'm talking about orchestras, I'm talking about opera houses, schools of music, they were codified and built if not during Jim Crow, during slavery itself. So, of course, that culture of anti-blackness is foundational to the history of classical music in the United States. 
But that didn't keep people like William Grant still from being involved in it. It's only uh, in the in the past few decades where uh, we have really been unearthing uh, this music. And in the case for some uh, classical composers, really in the past five or five to ten years where we've just really acknowledged their contributions. But yeah, to answer your question, it all boils down to uh, anti-blackness and racism in the United States and how that has manifested in all of our systems, including classical music. Mm. Given all the spaces, Garrett, I'm glad you're the expert here. I'm just a guy, I'm just a lowly talk show host asking questions. I don't know the answers, <laughs> but, I, but I know the right questions to ask. Uh, so let me, let, let me just ask this question. So back in the day, uh, what were these black folk composing? And more, more, more to the point, who were they composing for? And I'm, I'm asking that against the backdrop of, 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 of my knowledge at least in this regard, that we've always been kept out of so many spaces in this country artistically, uh, creatively, economically, politically, culturally. Uh, you, you take my point. We've been kept out of so many spaces. So when these composers in black were doing their thing back in the day, who were they doing it for and with? Yeah, that's an incredible question, and it's really complex. So when we, I'll take a couple steps back. Sure, sure, sure. When we talk about decolonizing classical music, what we're really talking about is taking that phrase and applying it to a broader range of music and musical aesthetics than we have traditionally done so with. So when we talk about the foundational music, the classical music of the United States, we're really talking about the blues and even beyond that, you know, field hollers and the Negro spiritual. So all of the music, especially from the early 20th century uh, that we hear from black composers, is derived from those traditions. The uh, excerpt from the Afro-American Symphony that we listened to at the uh, beginning of this hour uh, is subtitled the Juba Dance. So, you know, many listeners uh, may know the history of Juba dances and, you know, how that is a, a Afro-American tradition going all the way back to the plantation. So uh, when these composers were writing music, they were dipping into the Juba. They were dipping into the spirituals. They were dipping uh, into blues and, and all of these things. So, you know, for them to have the ability to realize those traditions in uh, the orchestral medium meant that uh, they were spreading our traditions and our classical music to audiences that would have no proximity to it uh, uh, otherwise. Uh, the, the audiences, again, because of Jim Crow and, and racism, uh, did typically uh, uh, be all white or if not predominantly uh, white audiences. Uh, but the celebration of that culture is really what has uh, been the fuel to bring these pieces of music to life and the inspiration of these uh, composers to write the music. Just getting started in this hour as we talk with our guest Garrett McQueen about decolonizing uh, classical music. Uh, we started with a piece from William Grant Steele. We're going to play music, as I said, all throughout this hour, classical music by Folk who look like you and me, folk with melanin in their skin. Before we go to uh, to this uh, next piece, uh, tell me uh, a bit about Montgomery Variations. That's what we're playing next here, Garrett McQueen. Yeah, so there's a woman uh, who lived, uh, her name is uh, Ma uh, Margaret Bonds. She lived in the middle part of the uh, 20th century. And in addition to uh, being a, a great songwriter and arranger, uh, was very active in uh, political spaces. So if anyone knows the tune, he's got the whole world in his hands. You already know the music of Margaret Bonds. That is a, uh, an original Margaret Bonds arrangement of, of that spiritual. So as she developed as a composer, uh, she did not ignore the world around her. And in 1964, she wrote a piece of music in response to the protests that were happening down in Montgomery for voting rights. 
in those protests, spirituals were always sung to keep people uh, in living and uh, just just to, just to keep them going. And the first movement of this Montgomery Variations is her take on the spiritual, I want Jesus to walk with me. This recording comes from the Minnesota Orchestra, recorded for the first time by a professional orchestra just a couple years ago, the first movement of Margaret Bonds' Montgomery Variations. Garrett McQueen, uh, what we're listening to, which I'll let you explain in just a second, uh, sounds so good, I don't want to interrupt for two reasons. Number one, because, in fact, it sounds so delicious in my ears. Uh, but secondly, because <laughs> we've all been trained to keep our mouths shut when we're in the midst of a performance, and I feel like I'm interrupting the performance, <laughs> which, would, which would not be cool, which would not be cool if we were literally at a performance. I digress. His name is Garrett McQueen. I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. We're glad about it because in this hour, we are decolonizing classical music. Tell me about the piece we're listening to right now, Garrett McQueen. Yeah, so I want to shout out the Du Bois Orchestra for that performance. That's an excerpt from the Second Symphony by a man uh, known as Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint-Georges. So just a little about him. This was someone who lived in the seven, uh, 1700s and over history uh, was considered by many scholars the Black Mozart. Well, uh, through more study, we have found out that Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint-Georges not only was born a decade before Mozart, but was actually someone who Mozart learned many things from. And in some writings, we uh, can detect that there was some jealousy on Mozart's part because Joseph Bologna, as a black man living in France, got all sorts of attention from all sorts of royalty and nobility, including uh, uh, Queen uh, uh, the, the queen herself. So when we think about this idea of classical music, it's very important to point it to Afro-American culture and, you know, more 19th and 20th century uh, culture. But what's also vital is to understand that black people have been doing this thing called classical music for centuries now, even beyond the United States. And there's even a, a, a film that's uh, out now uh, called Chevalier where people can learn more about this historical figure. Mm. As I'm listening to this, uh, is there anything more difficult? I have great respect for composers. I, I have had the honor in my career to talk to so many great composers. Indeed, on this program yesterday, one of the best, uh, Smokey Robinson, William Smokey Robinson, a oh, guest yeah. on this program yesterday. So I've had the honor uh, of, of having personal relationships and friendships. Uh, everybody knows that Prince was a dear friend of mine. Um, so, so. I, I mean, again, I've talked to everybody. I've been blessed in my career to talk to just a little bit of everybody. I have great respect for artists because even my friends who write uh, fiction, I'm a nonfiction writer. I've written 20-some books, but they're all nonfiction. And I love uh, and have great respect for fiction writers because they create stuff out of nowhere, out of the ether. They just create a story. When I write a book, I'm talking about something that I know something about or I'm critiquing a particular issue. It's nonfiction, but fiction writers just create stuff out of, the, out, out of nothing, right? And and that's what composers do. But is there anything, uh, with all due respect to all composers, anything more difficult than composing classical music for all those instruments? I would say that it is definitely something that, you know, many people have a gift for, uh, something that, you know, is not easy to, to jump into. But to pull on one of the threads that you uh, presented there, much of what we hear in classical music is actually pulled from the world, from real-life events. You mm. know, before the break, we listened to a little bit of uh, uh, Margaret Bonds' Montgomery Variations. So while that was uh, an original composition, she's really drawing on culture. And I think that applies to 
classical music, even beyond classical music written by uh, black composers. So much of this points to culture of the time and events of the time, and that tradition uh, has continued. That's one reason why I think the conversation of decolonizing classical music is so important, because there are so many composers, especially black composers today, who are writing music that speaks to what we are going through, speaking to our experiences, our culture, and doing so as a means of codifying it for generations to come. We're talking in this hour, of course, about decolonizing classical music with Garrett McQueen, our uh, expert uh, guest in this hour. You mentioned uh, black composers. Let me let me come forward, and, and we'll go backwards if we need to, which I'm sure we will. But 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 in real time, in late modernity, how are black composers and their work being regarded or not uh, by orchestras in this country and around the world? Yeah, so there are so many studies that have been done by so many great institutions about programming and uh, programming practices. Uh, as is true for many institutions, uh, the, the tragic murder of George Floyd uh, was really the impetus for uh, a lot of change, and uh, classical music has been a huge part of that. Uh, there was a study done, I believe, in 2018 that uh, uh, proves that less than 2% of professional orchestral musicians in the United States are black. So if there isn't that much representation on the stage, representation through what is heard, through the programming, um, is even uh, more sparse. But there are a number of orchestras in more recent years who are you know, putting uh, forward not only the history of uh, black classical music, but the present of it as well. I'm based here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and this week the Minnesota Orchestra is actually premiering uh, the, the world premiere of a work called Breath, which is uh, in response to the murder of George Floyd. It's music uh, by a black composer named Carlos Simon uh, with lyrics. Uh, libretti written by Mark Mamuti Joseph. So I, I, I guess to, to answer your question, uh, there is a lot of catch-up that needs to be done. There isn't a lot of knowledge about this music because it simply wasn't normalized uh, in performance spaces or in teaching spaces. You know, I, I got a bachelor's and a master's degree in bassoon, the instrument that I play, but it wasn't until I entered the field as a professional uh, when I played a piece of music by a black composer. So there, there, there is positive work being done. It's positive work that's only uh, been done to the scale that it's uh, been done in the past two to five years, I would say. Mm -hmm. You've got a few things there now, Garrett, that I want to uh, unpack or give you a chance to unpack. Let me start with these uh, orchestral players. Um, it, is, it is the case for me uh, from the very beginning, the very first time I saw uh, uh, an orchestral performance, uh, I remember just straining, looking to try to find anybody black <laughs> in the orchestra. Uh, and on that first occasion, I didn't, I didn't spot anybody. And frankly, as you well know, in most places I've been, uh, whether I'm here at Disney hall or at the Philharmonic in New York or, in, or places around the globe, I've been honored to go to and sit and listen to or orchestral performances, uh, I'm always looking for some melanin, somebody black uh, uh, in the in the band, as black folk would say. Is there anybody black in the uh -huh. band? Uh, <laughs> that, that, that reminds me of the movie Pretty Woman. She went to see uh, that, that play, you'll recall, uh, with, uh, with her, the, the character played by Richard Gere, Julia Roberts, of course. Uh, and she says, I love the band. What a great band. Uh, so so, so when, I, when I go see the band, when I go see the orchestra, I'm always looking for somebody black. And to your point now, you just gave us the data points. Uh, why is it that that we are so slow? We know that black folk can play anything. 
Uh, and there are some artists who play everything. Uh, I mentioned Prince earlier on any one album. Prince would play 18 instruments on one album, man. So we know mm-hmm. we know it's not that we're it's not that we're incapable. Uh, so why is it that even today in 2023, when I go to Disney Hall or elsewhere, I'm still straining to find one, two, three black faces in the band, as it were? Yeah, I think there are, are two major things that contribute to that. The first that I'll speak to is the the lack of urgency on the part of our arts institutions to really put forward equitable practices to diversify orchestras. So the New York Philharmonic in, uh, I can't remember the exact year, but sometime in the uh, 50s or 60s when Leonard Bernstein was uh, at the head, he made history uh, by hiring its first uh, black musician, a violinist named uh, Sanford Allen. Today, there is still only one black musician, at least one tenured uh, full-time musician in that orchestra, the clarinetist uh, Anthony McGill. So over all of those decades, for there to be, you know, only uh, still one black musician in that orchestra, and I don't mean to pick on them, but there are Mm -hmm. many orchestras who have no black uh, people uh, at at all. So I think the first issue is that there isn't uh, a sense of urgency about making sure that our orchestras are representative of our communities and uh, of our country uh, as a whole. So, you know, there are conversations that we can have about uh, the audition process and those sorts of things. But what I see it as is, as as I've been saying, just a lack of urgency. But, But the other big issue, I think, is early access uh, to the to the art form. So, you know, if you uh, engage any violinist in any American orchestra, chances are they started their training when they were five, six, seven years old. I was sort of a late bloomer as a bassoonist. I started the bassoon uh, when I was in seventh grade uh, at 12 years old. And even then, there were so many challenges when it came to, you know, uh, purchasing uh, different sorts of equipment, to, you know, traveling here and there for lessons. And we haven't even talked about the cost of these instruments. You know, these instruments uh, can easily uh, cost twenty, twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars, and that's just you know financial access that uh, many black folk just don't have. So mm-hmm. there, there are there are many reasons why uh, we, we see such uh, a disparity. Yeah. But with uh, the great work of so many institutions, uh, we are making some headway in diversifying and ultimately decolonizing our American orchestras. I want to make room for another piece we're about to play, um, uh, Lift Every Voice. And I'll let uh, Garrett uh, explain what you're about to hear in just a second when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports, and after you're listening to this iteration of Lift Every Voice. We'll talk more about that audition process and uh, uh, the the early access or lack thereof. We'll talk about the cost and we'll talk about Gustavo Dudamel. Uh, I mentioned the L.A. field. He mentioned the New York field. Uh, Gustavo Dudamel, I, I, I know well and have interviewed a number of times. Great guy. He's not black, but he's certainly a person of color. And we're about to lose him mm-hmm. in L.A. There's a big piece in the New York Times today. I just read it this morning before I came on the air. A big piece in the New York Times today about his leaving uh, the L.A. field and headed to New York uh, where he will commence in 2026. And the article came out today, I think, because he's doing a piece. He's, he's, he's conducting something it, with the New York field in New York this weekend, I think. But he'll be there permanently come 2026. And I'll, I'll talk uh, later with Garrett uh, in this hour about whether or not uh, the presence of this person of color and all the success he's having will make a difference for more people of color. But tell me quickly about this piece we're about to hear, Lift Every Voice, as we move to sports, news, and traffic. Garrett? Yeah, so this is an arrangement of the famous spiritual by James Cockerham, performed by the Gateways Festival Orchestra, which is an all-black orchestra based in Rochester, New York. I encourage everyone to learn more about the Gateways Festival Orchestra. There's a radio program in syndication right now that I produced incredible ensemble and an incredible orchestral realization of this 
timeless tune that we know is Lift Every Voice. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. We are talking in this hour about decolonizing classical music. You are listening uh, to uh, the the conducting, at least, of uh, uh, Gustavo Dudamel. Uh, our guest in this hour is Garrett McQueen, as we talk about uh, decolonizing classical music with Garrett. I mentioned moments ago before news traffic and sports that uh, Gustavo Dudamel has, in fact, decolonized uh, with his brilliance uh, classical music. He is not African-American, obviously, but from Venezuela. Uh, and um, he's all the rage, uh, so much so that the New York field has stolen him from the L.A. field. Uh, for those who know the L.A. field, Deborah Border, who's from New York, came to L.A. for a number of years. And Deborah Border uh, brought Gustavo Dudamel to the L.A. field. I mean, she announced a couple of years ago she was leaving to go back home to New York. Uh, most of us knew then, who are fans of the L.A. field, it was just a matter of time before Deborah Border uh, stole Gustavo Dudamel, the maestro, uh, for the New York field. And sure enough, it happened. Uh, he's in New York this weekend, I believe, um, conducting a piece. Uh, with the New York field, uh, but he'll be there permanently come 2026. We all love him. We all love the hair flopping around the play, uh, all over the place. Uh, but my, my, my question, Garrett, is what do you think um, the ascendance and the brilliance um, and the exposure of Gustavo Dudamel uh, has done perhaps to, to decolonize classical music as we know it? Sure. Well, the first thing I'll say is that the great Russian composer Igor Stravinsky once said that good musicians borrow, great musicians steal. Mm -hmm. So when you use the word steal, I don't hear that as a as a negative <laughs> at all. But, uh, but, <laughs> but but you know, there, there there's so much that has to be said about Gustavo Dudamel. Uh, what we're hearing him conduct right now is a work by a black woman named Jessie Montgomery, one of the most performed living uh, composers today. A work of hers called Banner, which sort of is her take on a national anthem for our time and for our people. So when we talk about uh, Gustavo Dudamel specifically, uh, we have to talk about Elsa Stemma, uh, which he is a product of uh, down in Venezuela mm -hmm. and has uh, traveled around the world as a means of exposing young people uh, to orchestral music and to Western classical music. So I think he his work fits perfectly in this idea of colonization because through that programming, he not only um, uh, uh, taught kids and did not only, you know, uh, benefit from learning about the Western European composers, but connecting Venezuelan culture, Venezuelan uh, composers and, and music and aesthetics and placing that in the concert hall. So with him as an example, I think that there is so much that we can do here in the United States for black people to make sure that we're integrating uh, roots, we're integrating jazz and blues, even R&B and hip hop into how we teach young musicians how to play these instruments, ultimately to the goal of those experiences becoming normalized in concert halls today. So when we talk about decolonizing classical music, really what I'm talking about is taking the orchestral experience and making sure that it aligns with our aesthetics today, what we find entertaining, what we find interesting, as opposed to sticking with a, a, a historical narrative and tradition rooted in Western Europe. To your, to your use of the word alignment, I'm glad you went there, um, because as much as I uh, enjoy uh, a good classical performance, as often as uh, I can get there, uh, again, in this city, in New York, around the globe, and I've been honored to do a little bit of all of that, as you have as well, um, the thing about classical music that I think is concerning for some uh, who have not uh, uh, found a taste for it as yet 
is that it's the same old, same old, as we say in, in the hood, mm. which is, you know where I'm going with this, obviously. It, it, it was written by somebody 500 years ago, and you got to play it the way they wrote it. Uh, there is no such thing as improvisation. Uh, I, I mean, you're the musician. I'm not. Uh, I think most people would not regard uh, that there is any improvisation. They would not consider that there's any improvisation when you're playing classical music. And brothers and sisters like to do their own thing. When you're in a jazz band, you know, everybody got a solo, and on any, on any given night, it may be different. But when you're playing what Beethoven wrote or what Mozart wrote, you better play it the way they wrote it, not room for any improvisation. And, and, and let's, let's be clear, that ain't the way black folk do things. We like to improvise, brother. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> One of the important things I think uh, there is to understand is that when we talk about the whitewashing of classical music, that is something that has negatively impacted even some of the Western European white classical music. So improvisation was a huge part of performing uh, in the in the Baroque style uh, way back when. But, you know, as, as time went on and we get up to contemporary culture, there are just a few Western European composers and maybe one or two uh, American ones who we've put up on these pedestals and sort of stopped the, the timeline as far as the progression of what we put onto these stages. So when I think about Mozart, for example, he very often included Turkish uh, folk music and, and, and those sorts of things in his compositions. And audiences in those days recognized that Mozart was dipping out into popular culture. That's what we really uh, are working so hard in my work uh, independently and my work with the American Composers Orchestra to really bring back to the tradition of classical music. If anything, we are, we are highlighting uh, the parts of the tradition that have been erased. And for me and my work, applying that to black stories, black culture, and black sensibilities. When we come forward, I want to talk more expressly uh, uh, about your work with American Poses Orchestra, ACO. Uh, we are talking in this hour with uh, the classical agitator, Garrett McQueen. <laughs> uh, we're going uh, to play now the seven last words of the unarmed. Say a word about that, and we'll get it on right away. Yeah, so uh, the composer of this work, a brilliant composer named Joel Thompson, who uh, years ago took the last words of seven victims of police brutality and put them to music. So in this piece, you'll hear, uh, you can hear words like, Mom, I'm going to college. Why, what are you following me for? You shot me. You know, just putting to music uh, those last words and bringing those stories and those narratives into the concert hall. When I saw this work performed for the first time live back in 2017, it changed the entire trajectory of my career and my life. If we're able to put these stories forward in an orchestral uh, setting, there are so many other stories that we can put forward all toward the liberation um, of, of our people. So an excerpt here from The Seven Last Words of the Unarmed by Joel Thompson. Garrett McQueen, as we listen to The Seven Last Words of the Unarmed, it's it, it's hard to imagine. It's it's a beautiful thing, but it's hard to imagine that this this art form that has so long been normalized as white, that has been the subject, obviously, of the normative white gaze, could be used for a piece like the one we're listening to to advance something that makes you think, as opposed to just uh, it, it empowers you as much as entertaining you. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, most definitely. I think. One of the really powerful things about the seven last words of the unarmed and many works like it is that it breaks down and dismantles this idea of classical music being an escape from the world. As I don't have to tell you or or your listeners, you know, there's no escape 
for being black. As mm. soon as we walk out the door, you know, we are going to, you know, uh, be viewed as such and treated as such by various institutions, including the police. So by highlighting and platforming works like those, we are taking this historically predominantly white space and bringing in one of our narratives, again, to dismantle the mm. idea of this being a space where we escape from the world, but rather where we actually engage these conversations. That performance uh, was done in 2017 by the Sphinx Symphony Orchestra, a very important organization that promotes diversity in the field of classical music and one of the many organizations that supports the work that we do at the American Composers Orchestra. We'll close our conversation by talking about ACO uh, in a moment here, but let me ask you right quick, watching the clock here, um, speaking of, uh, of normalization, uh, why classical music even still has not been normalized for black people? Is it just um, a lack of early access to the art form? Is it, is it the fact that it's too expensive to buy these instruments to get in it? Why do you think all these years later it hasn't been normalized for black people writ large? You know, the late, great Nina Simone described the music that she put out there as black classical music. So I think one of the issues is our use of that phrase. As mm. I was saying earlier in this hour, when we think about what really is American classical music, we have to go all the way back to the roots of the Negro spiritual as something that existed nowhere else and was created nowhere else. So when we talk about engagement of classical music, I believe that drawing that circle broader and uh, putting more of our historical aesthetics into that bucket of what we call classical music, including blues, jazz, bebop, all of those things. If we can even decolonize the phrase, I believe that will be a huge step forward in making sure that our black youth engage this art form and all that it has to offer to audiences. Powerful point, powerful point, uh, Garrett McQueen. Garrett McQueen is the is known as the uh, the classical agitator, and you can see why. Uh, but he's also director of artist equity for the American Composers Orchestra, better known as ACO. And we'll talk about ACO in our final moments with Garrett McQueen when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Just a few minutes left in this hour with the uh, classical agitator, our guest Garrett McQueen, who I've enjoyed immensely. Uh, in this hour, talking about decolonizing classical music. About three or four minutes left in this hour. Before I ask my final question, my exit question, tell me about the piece we're listening to right now, Garrett. An excerpt there from the Negro Folk Symphony that was premiered uh, in Philadelphia back in 1934. The composer is William Levy Dawson. He took music that his grandmother taught him, who was a slave, and made that into uh, a symphony that really highlights uh, the power and the beauty of the creation of the Negro spiritual. Very important piece of American classical music there. Mm. Here's my exit question, and we'll let that play all the way to the top um, so the audience can enjoy it underneath you uh, And uh, as we wrap up today's program. Um, tell me about the work of uh, ACO. As I mentioned, um, Garrett uh, McQueen is the Director of Artist Equity for the American Composers Orchestra. Tell me all about the work that you're, you're doing there, Garrett McQueen. Indeed. So we're based in New York City. You know, when we think about things like the Harlem Renaissance or the birth of hip-hop 50 years ago this year, New York has always been a hotbed of new thoughts surrounding music. So at the American Composers Orchestra, we connect emerging composers to orchestras across the country and across North America to make sure that our stories are being told and new music is being normalized and codified for audiences to come. Over 88% of the composers who we support through our programming are people of color, BIPOC identifying, and you can learn more about all of our composer advancement work at AmericanComposers.org. It's always a pleasure for me to lead our composer advancement work there at ACO. 
Garrett McQueen, you're doing brilliant work. Uh, I have nothing but love and respect for your work and witness, and I'm glad that you are in that space. Oftentimes we say if there had been one of us in the room, things might have been differently. I'm glad that you're the one in the room uh, doing your brilliant work at ACO and making sure that the world respects the grand contributions historically and, uh, uh, and futuristically when it comes to African-American composers and players in the world of classical music. Garrett McQueen has been our guest in this hour. Garrett, thank you so much for your time, brother. All the best to you. We appreciate you. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. We enjoyed this conversation about decolonizing classical music. Let me get out of the way so you can hear the rest of this uh, between now and the top of the hour. Up next, the Midday Money Chain. Until tomorrow morning, thanks for tuning in. And as always, keep the faith.